Hunter Thompson is a moralist posing as an immoralist. Nixon is an immoralist disguised as a moralist. This is James Salter. There'll be thieves and autorecs in Aspen whoever gets elected. But Hunter represents something wholly alien to the other candidates for sheriff. Ideas. And a sympathy towards the young, generous, grass-oriented society, which is making the only serious effort to face the technological nightmare we have created. The only thing against him is he's a visionary. He wants to cure the world. We were uh, we were somewhere in the Midwest recording a podcast when the drugs began to take hold. <laughs> <laughs> I started typing that out, and I was having fun with that. I, nice. I typed out the first first paragraph relevant to the podcast. So uh, that's that's solid. Let's let's hear yeah. let's hear the whole. Thing. Oh, see, all right. I remember saying I'm feeling a little lightheaded. Maybe we, you should do the talk. And and suddenly there was a terrible war- roar all around us, and this sky was full of what looked like Dead Sea Scrolls swooping and screeching and blowing around my microphone, which was recording at about a hundred words a minute to describe some <laughs> stupid topic or terrible tweet that I'd found. And a voice was screaming, holy Jesus, what are these ancient manuscripts? Then it was quiet again. My hundred-pound Italian lawyer had taken a shirt off and was pouring a can of bubbly on his chest to facilitate the tanning process. And that was about as far as I got. But <laughs> uh, that's That was rough. <laughs> I was having fun. That was good. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. I'm a uh, man. I, w- I wish I was that prepared. Yeah. See, that's how prepared I am. Yeah. We're, we're, we're gonna, we're coming out of this like rock star podcasters. That's what's going to yeah. be our downfall. We're going <laughs> to probably both commit suicide in 2025. Yeah. That's uh, I thought that was kind of a given, but true. <laughs> but uh... at, on the bright side, at least Johnny Depp is going to fund our funerals. <laughs> oh man well if if people haven't gathered today's episode is about hunter s thompson um good dude oh man i think it's like nice to come in with an episode about something after um both that bonus Mm -hmm. episode and then probably our worst episode we've ever recorded yep having some real substance and a topic (laughs) some sort of you know, thing that we're actually talking about that's not us sitting at a mic and being like, huh, what should we talk about? Yeah. yeah. Generally good. Generally good. That's, uh, you know, the, <clears throat> the true spirit of this podcast is really about, you know, us. And community. Um, I Real quick, I had to download a PDF of The Love Dare in a panic because the website I had been using t- that with the illicit copy, uh, it, it took it down. And so oh, I had wow. to download this one now because I was I was concerned I wouldn't have access to it anymore. Mm. Uh, so let's go ahead and get started on the love dare so we can get moving on this episode. What do you think? I'm thinking so. I, you know, it's really telling how much you're wanting to rush through this now. Like, oh, yeah. is it is it too hard being nice now? Yeah, wow. it really is. Um, that makes sense. I can't. Day really. eleven. Love cherishes. Uh, today's passage is Ephesians five twenty eight. Husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Uh, today's dare. What need does your co-host have that you could meet today? Can you run an errand, give a 
back rub or foot massage? Is there housework you could help with? Choose a gesture that says, I cherish you and do it with a smile. So I really ran with the housework you could do with uh, idea, except I changed it to um, podcast prep. So I did all the notes for this episode. <laughs> well, let's just let's just get started then. Welcome to Very Legal, Very Cool, a podcast about the death of the 60s. And also, uh, Jared is a great co-host because I'm supposed to say that at every introduction. Yeah, you are. She thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> well, uh, do you want to tell our dear listeners that story? Or So there I was. <laughs> in the heart of Peoria. I was, um, I was in, a, in a strip club when the peyote set in. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was in the, the classic Peoria joint, Big Al's. If, uh, if you're familiar with Peoria, you know. You know, Big Al's. Uh, I hear that the lunch buffet is actually very good. Um, <laughs> but it was me and my buddy. We, we went to Big Al's and, you know, we're there. We're we're doing the thing. We Neither of us had ever been to a strip club before, but it was one of those things where you've just got to go once, right? You got to experience mm-hmm. it, I guess. We were drunk. We were walking around. It was in walking distance from my apartment at the time. I was like, all right, whatever. We'll, uh, we'll go. So we went. We went and... Um, you know, we got our, our overly expensive beers at the bar. We suffered the like $10 ATM fee for all single dollar bills at the door. Um, we got in, sat down, started talking to a nice young lady. Um, was not, well, she started talking to me. I (laughs) really wasn't sure how to handle that situation, but I, I, you know, graciously removed myself before she started asking for money and went to, uh, I don't even know what they call it. Like one of the little stages where they have the dancers and it's like me, my buddy and this group of guys that seem like regulars. And you can tell that they're regulars because they all look really sad. And it's like, (laughs) you know, think of the kind of person that you imagine is a regular at a strip club. And then think of the kind of person that you imagine is the regular at a strip club. That's called big Al's. And it, it's essentially those guys there. And, they're sitting and there in their chairs. They're like looking at us, like nodding, like going, Oh yeah, look at that. Look at that. <laughs> and we're just like, oh, guys, all right. And, you know, we, we go there, we do the thing. We, you know, put out the dollar bills and you know, stare at the naked women. And one of them, you know, is, is dancing and she goes up to my friend and she accidentally knocks over his beer and she knocks his beer over and she goes up to him and is like, oh, I'm so sorry. And so she rips off her panties, grabs the back of his head and shoves his entire face into her vagina. Um, as, as an apology and I'm staring in kind of awe and horror. He comes up for air and he turns to me and he says, I want to go home. And so we left. <laughs> and that was the wow. last time I went to a strip club. Wow. That was, that was really gonzo. Uh, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> and that's my review of big owls in Peoria, Illinois. <laughs> We should we should do an episode or like segment at some point where we read um, reviews like at like like um, 
uh, Yelp reviews of like strip clubs. <laughs> I think that would be pretty funny. I think that would be amazing. <laughs> something to <laughs> something to think about. <laughs> uh, well, let's let's get moving today, Jared. Uh, Jared, what are you drinking today? Let's do that real quick. I actually don't have a drink on me. I guess I should probably oh. go grab one. Go grab a bubbly. Okay. Uh... <laughs> Can can I, can we do that segment right now? Yeah. The big Wanda owls. T gave Big Al's one star on Yelp. <laughs> she said, "Lazy, unattractive dancers who barely dance. They hang all over old men looking for free drinks. I got in free, and I still want a refund." <laughs> Jason B says, "Worst strip club I've ever been to. One stripper working. Creepy patrons here for a wedding. My girlfriend followed me into the bathroom as I didn't realize I had her cell phone. Soon after, the bouncer immediately said that was not allowed. I apologized, walked out, and then was assaulted. When they threatened to call the cops, I anxiously explained my situation. After doing so, the cops looked nothing but perplexed. Nothing was done, and the strip club continued. And the strip club pathetically continued on its path to irrelevance. I know there aren't many options in Peoria, but whatever you do, do not go to this pathetic excuse of a strip club. I know the girls aren't allowed in the male bathroom, but there are ways to handle it correctly if your job title is security. And needless to say, the ball was dropped. For context, this happened at 10:30 on a Friday, and I'm still kicking and i'm still kicking to write you this tale uh, we've got one more um one star uh i er oh, chelsea says one star i er quote unquote know someone who used to work here if you enjoy trashy drug addicted prostitutes who give extra sexual fla- favors to men in the vip room this is your club pretty on the outside nasty on the inside please don't go here and support the crippling drug habits of these dying women or the commonly passed infectious diseases no one trying to help these girls when they come in only fuel their downward st- spiral then again everyone has a choice to make right i've seen many destroyed in this place and this business in general do yourself a favor stay safe keep your wallet safe in your pocket and avoid this club like the plague or risk contracting the plague and a lost wallet that review had a hunter s thompson feel to it. that was <laughs> that was that was uh something else um i think that we can uh <clears throat> we can we can end this with the final review which is four stars from donnie <laughs> first time in peoria after dinner i decided to see if i could stir up some trouble and gave big al's a shot i didn't know what to expect of the place but was pleasantly surprised spaces modern clean yikes place looked brand new i could tell they would take pride in the joint big owls it was a little quiet when i got there so i sat at the bar had a few drinks watched one of the giant tvs then it seemed like all, all these girls come out of nowhere beautiful and talented very talented ended up getting dances from two separate ladies was not let down either time will death be swinging by next time i'm in town wow he's a positive fellow <laughs> and that's that's big owls in peoria uh so make your choice next time you're in peoria <laughs> it's got two stars on yelp all right well i'm gonna go grab a drink real quick yeah go grab a drink okay i'm back okay all right what are you drinking i am drinking a blackberry bubbly very good very good i'm drinking budweiser uh because it's cheap nice nice i'm i'm (laughs) off the juice for a little bit here no that's so it's uh, it's all seltzers from here on out you're like me last summer hey yeah. Except those were alcoholic seltzers, but you know. Right, right. These are just uh, your run-of-the-mill, normal, expensive, spicy water. Spicy water. <laughs> it's uh, like, do you want water, but do you want to pay more for it? 
That's seltzer. <laughs> That's seltzer for you. Yeah. The answer is yes. Yes, I do. Normally, at this moment, we would uh, we would interview the person. Yeah, so, but um, if you want to just, just be, are you circumcised? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> How was that? Uh, well, I don't recall. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but, um, but I, I don't have any strong feelings either which way. Saves on cleaning a little bit. Yeah. Jared, did you finish the reading for this episode? <laughs> Your question's a lot harder than mine was. Uh, no. Um, no. <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> uh. I made it about halfway through. Um, a little actually over halfway through. But then is, is... instead of reading it on the way home, on the plane ride back, I decided that I wanted to play games on my phone. And so I did that. <laughs> All right. Well, today we're talking about Hunter S. Thompson. So I think the usual question we do with this stuff is um, like what your experience with the thing we're talking about is. So I'm going to give you a start. Like what is your history with the the late Hunter S. Thompson? Yeah, I I read Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas in high school. And that was one of the books that like that started getting me down the road of I want to pursue an English degree. And so, so it was, it was like, the beginning of your downfall, you could say. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> you know, all all the worst choices in my life stemmed from Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> He's the one that made me think, hmm, maybe drugs are cool. And <laughs> that was also one of the first movies I watched in college. Um, so it's a very early college situation there. For, for fear and loathing in Las Vegas. And then I really didn't do much with, I didn't go beyond that until more recently. Um, mm-hmm. So watched Gonzo. I've been pretty, pretty immersed in like <clears throat> that era of things recently. So like watched Gonzo. Mm-hmm. I've been watching a lot of stuff on like the early LSD um, manufacturing and culture. And Hunter S. Thompson, of course, is a, a character that can't really be separated from a lot of that. So Right. I've uh, I've been doing kind of a deep dive into his life and his things, and I've gone as far as to read about half of one of his other books. So <laughs> you could say that I'm a, a real a real expert. And how R- about yourself? A real, real Thompson head. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, my experience with Thompson is uh, really just that I, I watched Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas in high school. And that was, let's see, I was in high school when I watched it, and you were in early college when you watched mm-hmm. it, you said. And I remember mm-hmm. this because um, I think back to this because I told you my, my thoughts on it when I first watched it. Um, you know, and I hadn't read the book. So yeah. the movie, I, I think the movie's not bad. I think it might be even good, but it's definitely the most literal reading of the book possible is what's produced yes. in the movie. And so yes. because of that, I was like, this is truly a movie about nothing. This, There's no meaning here. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I mean, it was fun to watch, I guess, but I have no fucking clue what that was supposed to be about. And then you're like, well, no, it's about stuff because you'd read the book. And I was like, yeah, what's it about? And then in the most freshman of college answer you gave was you kind of sputtered and went, the American dream. <laughs> For additional context, I was writing a paper on the American dream and oh. using Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas as one of my sources. Nice. That's a good that's a good source. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. 
so after that, I mean, I didn't really interact with his work that much. Um, I stumbled across, like, I kind of started getting interested in him again a year or two ago because I stumbled across his uh, eulog- or obituary of Richard Nixon. And I was like, God, he's such a fun writer. And so <laughs> I just have been, like, sitting on that. And then you were like, hey, let's do an episode about Hunter S. Thompson. And so I used Audible to make my way through both Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and uh, the original topic of this episode, which was Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail in 1972, uh, which are both awesome. And then I ended up watching uh, Gonzo, the documentary about it. So it's really like all been the last couple weeks that I've actually dived in on him. He was just always something on the periphery of like literature to me. But yeah. Yeah. And he's he's lived a really fascinating life like. I'm kind of on the same timeline as you are. Um, yeah. I've always thought he was an interesting character. I've always, I've always liked the movie Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I, I've always thought the movie itself was really well done, but the book was also solid. But yeah, so that's about it. I think we've pretty much covered it. I think we've done it. I think we should. I think could I read a section of Hunter S. Thompson's? obituary of Nixon to give us just a good feel on who he is before we dive in. Okay. Nixon was a Navy man and he should have been buried at sea. Many of his friends were seagoing people, BB Rebozo, Robert Vesco, William F. Buckley Jr. As some of them went, wanted a full Naval burial. These come in at least two styles, however, and Nixon's immediate family strongly opposed both of them. In the traditionalist style, the dead president's body would be wrapped and sewn loosely in canvas sailcloth and dumped off the stern of a frigate at least a hundred miles off the coast and at least a thousand miles south of San Diego, so the corpse would never wash up on American soil in any recognizable form. The family opted instead for cremation until they were advised of the potentially onerous implications of a strictly private, unwitnessed burning of the body of the man who was, after all, the president of the United States. Awkward questions might be raised. Dark allusions to Hitler and Rasputin. People would be filing lawsuits to get their hands on the dental charts. Long court battles would be inevitable. Some with liberal cranks bitching about corpus delecti and habeas corpus and others with giant insurance companies trying not to pay off on his death benefits. Either way, an orgy of greed and duplicity was sure to follow any public hint that Nixon might have somehow faked his own death or been cryogenically transferred to fascist Chinese interests on the Central Asian mainland. (laughs) If the right people had been in charge of Nixon's funeral, his casket would have been launched into one of those open sewage canals that empty into the ocean just south of Los Angeles. He was a swine of a man and a jabbering dupe of a president. Nixon was so crooked that he needed servants to help him screw his pants on every morning. Even his funeral was illegal. He was queer in the deepest way. His body should have been burned in a trash bin. (laughs) That is truly incredible. So Hunter S. Thompson was most known for his writing in the 1960s and for doing a lot of drugs while he did writing. Supposedly, he started writing when he got a typewriter and just kind of um, continued to rewrite The Great Gatsby over and over and over to get the feeling of what rhythm, like the rhythm of writing is like, you know? Well, specifically the rhythm of uh, Scott Fitzgerald. Because he liked him yeah, so much yeah. as a writer, he wanted to, to kind of emulate him, which explains the drugs, 
I don't know. I don't know how anyone <laughs> could type out The Great Gatsby over and over and over and come out of that okay. I, I thought you were going to say to write like F. Scott Fitzgerald, you needed to be on drugs, but I think you're, <laughs> you're probably more right. Just the fact that you rewrote the same book over and over probably implies some sort of heavy drug use. But <laughs> There's something that doesn't add up from the very beginning, though. Um, Supposedly, it took him, he was clean at this point, but... Well, I will say Probably pretty uh, Benjamin psychotic. Franklin did something similar, except it was the writing. Hmm. I don't remember who it was. It was some uh, some Roman dude, I think. But uh, this this is one of the very few things I remember from the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin that I read in high school. But that is how he <laughs> developed his writing style is he just found a writer that he liked and he wrote their stuff over and over again until he could write things that sounded like it. <laughs> I'm going to start doing that. But to Hunter S. Thompson. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and eventually just develop serious anxiety see i've been doing that except it's just been to the lyrics uh the lyrical writings of limp biscuit <laughs> so that's good <laughs> yeah so you know this writing eventually became a career in journalism and we're gonna skip over a lot of things because you know the man had the a pretty long stuff. life and it's it, it doesn't even matter, right? So <clears throat> he uh, he really started his, his journalism career with his project on the Hells Angels. Um, and that was his first big work. Uh, basically, he had <clears throat> he, ba- he did a, an investigative journalism piece for I don't remember who, but he, he wrote a book um, on the Hells Angels. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's really all I know yeah, you, about that book. So Josiah, do you I, wanna... I have I haven't I haven't read it either. But he uh, he basically like the birth of Gonzo started kind of mm-hmm. there because he was just yeah. like writing what he saw in a very literal sense, um, and that included him reporting stuff that normally journalists, if they witnessed, would kind of kick under the rug. Yeah. This is a trend. For Hunter S. Thompson is, um, I think at the beginning of Campaign Trail, he says like, uh, yeah. "Nothing's on, the, nothing's off the record for me. If you say something to me, it gets published." Um, so if I'm, if I remember correctly, um, as he was reporting on the Hell's Angels, um, there was a rape, mm-hmm. uh, and because of that, he reported the rape and made enemies of the Hell's Angels. And I would say yes. if there was any group that you did not want to make enemies of it would probably be the hell's angels in the 1960s yeah yeah god do, do you do you remember in the documentary and gonzo like there's this the shot of uh hunter s thompson gets is is on some show i don't remember what it was getting interviewed yeah. on tv some and they were gonna have show. him confronted confronted by a hell's angel and the hell's angel drives in on, on a, a motorcycle, motorcycle. yeah onto the <laughs> just on a set. talk show which you know, in and of itself isn't very threatening. Like you're you're riding in on a motorcycle with a leather jacket on a talk show. Yeah. <laughs> you kinda it you was kinda like lose he... a lot of a lot of the threat there. But Yeah, it was it was really just trying to add some sort of authority to him to continuing to go on being like, Oh, there was there was none no rape, no rape happens at the at the Hells Angels. Right. And like they tried to spin it as no, it was totally consensual. We're just really kinky. It was uh yeah, not great. Yeah, but but that uh, and just to skip forward a little bit, I think as we're talking about the Gonzo journalism, that was really important in Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, nineteen seventy two, 
because like mm-hmm. you'd said, nothing was off the record. And that is something that was totally not the case uh, in political journalism. And that, to a point where yeah. there was like all these unwritten rules. But what I really liked about him and his style was he, you know, he get, went into it saying, I don't want a career as a politics writer. So I'm basically going to go in and burn every bridge as I cross it for this book. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is just kind we'll of an incredible to. That, way to write that results in uh at least a couple funny instances which we'll get to uh, when we get to campaign trail right right <laughs> so later in the 60s hunter s thompson runs for sheriff of aspen county <laughs> on the platform of legalizing drugs <laughs> Wasn't there one other thing that he had as part of it? It was like legalizing drugs oh. and... Um, Let's see. I'm trying to see if I can find it. There was one other thing. It was the whole freak power stuff. Yeah. Oh, here we go. I got the list. Do you want me to read the yeah. freak power campaign? Yes. Okay. We got to rip up all city streets with jackhammers and sod the streets at once. All public movement would be by foot and a fleet of bicycles maintained by the city police force. Nice. Change the name Aspen by public referendum to Fat City. This would prevent greedheads, land rapers, and other human jackals from capitalizing on the name Aspen. These swine should be fucked, broken, and driven across the land. Drug sales must be controlled. My first act as sheriff will be to, ins- will be to install on the courthouse lawn... <laughs> <laughs> a bastinado platform and a set of stocks in order to publish din- dishonest dope dealers in a proper public fashion. Each year, these dealers cheat millions of people out of millions of dollars. It will be the general philosophy of the sheriff's office that no drug worth taking should be sold for money. <laughs> Hunting and fishing should be forbidden to all non-residents, with the exception of those who obtain the signed endorsement of a resident, who will then be legal res- legally responsible for any violation or abuse committed by non-residents he has signed for. By this, uh, that's that one's long. Uh, then we got the sheriff and his deputies should never be armed in public. Every urban riot, shootout, and bloodbath involving guns in recent memory has been set off by some trigger-happy cop in a fear frenzy. And last, it will be the policy of the sheriff's office savagely to harass all those engaged in any form of land rape. So, Josiah, would you <laughs> would you vote for Thompson? For I would a hundred percent vote for Hunter Des Thompson as sheriff. The sheriff I of think, Des Moines. Uh, yeah, I actually. So, okay, fun fun thing here. That mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting way to protest, though, is running for yeah. sheriff. Oh, absolutely. Uh, especially as uh, so so here in Des Moines, actually, there's a. Black Lives Matter uh, guy who the governor hit with her car. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a whole thing. Uh, he ended up running for sheriff here. Um, his name's Jalen Cavill, and he was just running as just like, uh, uh, yeah, I'm I'm gonna be the sheriff that doesn't do anything. <laughs> I want to like end the police. Um, he did not win, but it was a very funny campaign to watch happen because uh, people got very mad at him on Twitter. That's great. <laughs> Which is kind of not as publicized, but similar to kind of what Hunter S. Thompson did. He did not win. Yeah. He did not really get close to winning, it doesn't seem like. Uh, uh, he actually, he got really? surprisingly close to winning. Not like, mm. you know, super Wasn't close. was it like but... 30% or something? <sighs> I don't know. I, I think it was actually closer than that. Um, Damn. Yeah, no. He, Thompson got 173 votes to his opponent's 204. <laughs> like... It was reasonably close. 
Jesus so, Christ. Because they, they covered a lot of this in the Gonzo documentary, and it was definitely one of those things that kind of started out as a joke, as a protest, and then they actually got some traction with it, and um, he, they started to believe that they could actually win. That's um, right, that's right. Yeah. Oh, he also man. shaved his head for the whole thing. I remember, yeah, he was coming out in weird costumes. Mm-hmm. He would wear, like, <laughs> different hats for... For everything and sometimes like change hats during interviews. <laughs> um, also coming from this this campaign is the the symbol that came to represent Thompson, which was mm-hmm. the the double thumbed fist holding a peyote uh, button. Um, yep. Yeah, yeah, that's that's where his yeah famous symbol kind of comes from. Was that was that was the logo for his campaign? Yeah, and that'll come um, back up later. I'll come back up later. Does, is this like when he officially gets into drugs? I think that he had been into drugs for some time prior okay. to that. I remember. I, I'm I pretty sure during the Hells Angels, story. he wasn't a drug guy at the time, according to the official story. Right. Yeah, I don't I don't know exactly when that happened. I guess that would be kind of an important thing that we should have researched for the podcast. Yeah, uh, it seems it. like for a guy that's, uh, you know, his whole thing is pretty much drugs. Um yeah, we'll we're mostly talking about the 60s, story. though. We're just given the back background for the 60s stuff. I think that's really True. the main. Yeah. At some point or other in Hunter S. Thompson's life, um, he, he was, you drugs. know, hanging out, hanging out with his friends who might have been, you know, from the a uh, little, little rougher. And they they offered him a single marijuana. And mm. that single marijuana turned into a trunk full of mescaline and cocaine. Mm-hmm. Um and that is why you don't do drugs. Drugs are bad, okay? Drugs are don't bad. Don't do drugs, do tacos. <laughs> so gonzo journalism <laughs> is officially born and I don't have a date, but it's a uh, it's a piece that he wrote for uh Scanlon's magazine, Scanlon, mm-hmm. do you know? I don't know what that is cuz it doesn't exist anymore. It's a tiny magazine. Right. Um and he was sent out to report on the Kentucky Der- Kentucky Derby. Yep. And did not report on the Kentucky Derby really at all. Well, he kind of did. <laughs> well, that's what they, that's what he the... He certainly kind of did. <laughs> he certainly reported on something. <laughs> he, um, he, okay. There's a, a really, one of my favorite uh, Robert Frank photos. Uh, Robert Frank's one of my favorite uh, photographers who at some point I actually would love to talk about street photography. But um, mm-hmm. anyway, he, uh, he's got this like, pretty famous photo from the Americans where it's a picture of a movie star, um, except the movie star is out of focus. And the thing that is in focus is all the cheering people behind her that like are trying to emulate and like that love her. And so the like focus is on the audience. It's not on the subject actually. That is what's going on in the Kentucky Derby piece. It's not at all about the Kentucky Derby. It's about the weird fucked up audience (laughs) and how weird and fucked up they are. Uh, the title and, of the piece is "The Kentucky Derby is Decadent and Depraved," <laughs> and this is one of those uh, one of those assignments that he would have gone out on, where they ask for five hundred words and he comes back with thirty pages. <laughs> um, I think it was like a th- this article is extremely long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, this is also I think when he picked up on Ralph Steadman, right? Is that when he started to have his yep. relationship with Steadman? Yeah, yeah. Ralph so Steadman is- illustrated this. This weird fucked up illustrations, just like the, yeah, Ralph Steadman's mm-hmm. got. Some, just Google his work sometime, and you'll like get a. But really more importantly, weird feel. 
Google his work before he met Hunter S. Thompson and Google <laughs> his work after because Thompson introduced him to psychedelics. <laughs> and his work changes quite a bit after that introduction. This is... Yeah, you do really get to see what what psychedelics would do to someone. <laughs> yeah, like, mm. and this level of psychedelic use. But no, mm. Stedman is a, he's a, an interesting character, but his illustrations are are really fascinating. I actually really like his, his I artwork. do like I his style it's, too. It's very good. I, I don't know that I've ever seen anything else quite like it, which is that's kind of true. point for it. It's very it's, unique. W- one of my biggest beefs that I have with... Um, the the Johnny Depp movie of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas um, is only no because animated it's animated re- segment. No, 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 no. We're not. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> no, it's that uh, now when you buy a copy of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, they have mm. only the fucking cover with Johnny Depp on it, and it's yes. really hard to find the like original Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas with the Ralph Steadman illustration on the front, which is like what I I would want if I yeah. owned it. But instead, I get this fucking you know '90s esque Depp having a warbly face. To go on a tangent, I hate that in general. That is like oh, that pisses me off to no end when I buy a book and it's just got like a fucking movie co- cover on it, like. I don't want that. If I wanted that, I'd buy the movie. And yeah. 100% of the time, the movie covers look way worse than the book covers. Yeah, no, I, I got kind of that too right now where it's like, um, I, I've been wanting, I, I'm finally going to try to get around to reading the Area X trilogy, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, the movie Annihilation is the first yeah. book from that. Um, and it's like actually pretty difficult to find a copy of Annihilation that doesn't have uh, Natalie Portman on the front. See, it's ridiculous. I don't want to see Natalie Portman. Yeah, I want to see does? a book cover. Who does? From from here on out, like our our good man Thompson, just uh, slowly kind of gets caught up in like the the California counterculture movement of the '60s, along with all your good old Vietnam protests and and all that good stuff. Right, and he's out there writing a lot of articles these days. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't do listening to the Grateful Dead. A lot of Grateful yes. Dead. A lot of Grateful Dead, a lot of a lot of article writing, a lot of drugs, a lot of cheating on his wife. Um, <laughs> oh, he has a kid around this time, too, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all good stuff. It was actually kind of sad in the documentary. Um, his because his oh, son, his was kid was heartbreaking. God. Yeah, that was that was rough because like the this kid and it, this was all normal to him. He didn't sound like heartbroken by it. It was just kind of like bums like, yeah, no, that was pretty normal my dad would just you know he'd wake up at about 5 p.m um do a bunch of drugs then disappear and he'd be gone for days and days at a time and you know like the only thing that we really bonded on was shooting guns together the (laughs) which you know i could relate to uh i feel that That's what me and my dad got going for us. Is, That's uh, that is guns. every every lib- liberal with a conservative father. Um, <laughs> every, every liberal who's not wildly against guns. It's um, like, <laughs> God, do I want to say this? Yeah, I, I had a moment where my dad and I had a pretty bad fight um, and we didn't talk for a few days. And then when my dad was trying to break the ice to get like get us fine again, he's like, you want to go out and shoot our gun? <laughs> <laughs> and like and that's that, like that's, that's some male bonding right there yeah i'll say the most uh the worst part of gonzo the documentary um 
more more sad or offensive than interviewing his kid is the fact mm-hmm. that they just brought Pat fucking Buchanan on like he's a normal <laughs> dude who didn't do anything <laughs> ever and never threw like rotting vegetables at him like he deserves. But that's they interviewed my the most bizarre people in that <laughs> I mean, documentary. Like, uh, I mean, I thought it was funny they interviewed Hell's, uh, Hell's Angel. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it was like I, I hate that dude, but you know he was a good journalist. <laughs> Let's say I got a number. That number's fifty thousand. That's ten percent of five hundred thousand. Well, welcome back to Very Legal, Very Cool. So we left off at Hunter S. Thompson in the 60s. And but now what let's have talk I told about Hunter you? S. Thompson in the 70s. No, 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 no. But the, I was going to say, what have I told you if the 60s died? Whoa. They died. No way. They died? How? They died. Tell me more. <laughs> uh, well, let's let's get into it. There's a book that Hunter S. Thompson wrote that is about the death of the 60s. Or, no way. Uh, or the American Dream, if if you're a freshman college student reading it. Uh, it or is the death called... of the American Dream, if you're a junior <laughs> college student reading it. <laughs> Hell yeah. So uh, Hunter S. Thompson met up with this guy named Oscar Zeta Acosta, uh, who is this... Um, well, he was writing this piece called Strange Rebellings in Aslan. Um I probably pronounced that wrong. It doesn't matter. Uh, it, it was about uh, a bunch of ten- racial tension that was going on at the time. I'm not exactly sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, because okay, it was it was about um, the Mexican American television journalist Ruben Salazar got killed, mm. and so he was reporting on that. And in the process, he met this this activist, um, and so they kind of just worked together. Tanner S. Thompson gets a commission for from Sports Illustrated. To go report on the Mint 400. Um, but he wasn't really supposed to report on the Mint 400. He and, and the Mint 400 to... is a motorcycle race. It's like oh, a really yeah. big motorcycle race out <laughs> in Las Vegas. Yeah, he was supposed to write 250 words as a photograph caption for Sports <laughs> Illustrated. And so he which grabbed... Is, <laughs> which is, I mean, just, just to pause real quick. This does not exist today. That's like, true. Yeah, no, we hired a writer. We drove him out to this race and we want him to write 250 words for a photo caption. <laughs> Think That's of true. how much money they spent for those 250 words. God, I wish this that was is the like... real death of journalism. <laughs> so so good old Thompson grabs up his buddy Acosta um, to kind of take advantage of this, you know, paid trip to Las Vegas and they're going to go enjoy themselves up in Las Vegas, um, and then Sports they Illustrated. They Corvette for. Yeah, they rented. Yeah, and Sports Illustrated then receives the commissioned, uh, and it was two thousand five hundred words. <laughs> Primarily, the ramblings of a drug-induced journey to Las Vegas, and so they uh, they rejected it. <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs> so instead it got, I think it got published in Rolling Stone, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and it, it continued to build off the 250 words to say. And so it turned into um, all these pieces that got published in the Rolling Stone that became the book, as we know, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And that's everything. That's yeah. everything to know about Hunter S. Thompson. That's it. What, what's uh, Tell it's me about, about Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. It's all about drugs and the American dream. Yeah. Uh, what's that? Well, tell me, about, tell me about Fear and Loathing. Well, Fear and Loathing is a book about the American dream, you know, <laughs> is what I would have said as a freshman in high school, in college. But now, uh, but now that I'm older and wiser and have just so much more life experience to pull from, uh, fear and loathing in Las Vegas is a book about doing drugs in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> But it really is kind of about <laughs> <Doing that. drugs. laughs> Well, it is if you, you know, I think in a way it's kind of the the horrifying manifestation of the 1960s uh, counterculture, mm-hmm. right? It's uh, it's lost all the moralism and excitement of this new future. And instead, it's just left with these drug induced panics, you know? Yeah, and it's, I think it's it's yeah. uh, that whole thing coming out of like, I, I don't not remembering what year specifically this came out in, but like it makes me think of coming out of the summer of love in conjunction with the Manson murders and that same thing where we're kind of in the hangover of the height of the 1960s where, you know, they, they are out there looking for this American dream um, and this this opportunity and freedom, but they're finding that that is gone. And like you said, what is left instead is this this fear and panic. And oh, would you say just, fear and loathing? Ooh, I might. I just might <laughs> uh, say that instead they they happened upon fear and loathing in wait for it, Las Vegas. <laughs> But like, uh, no, they do go in with all these expectations of this wild, insane journey, which they get. But, you know, it's it's horrifying kind of from the start, like even like that hitchhiker that they pick up and he's just like scared out of his mind is there, you know, they're barreling down the freeway in this rented Corvette and just like screaming in this poor kid's face, offering him drugs and waving a gun around. And then uh, they're like afraid that they're going to have to kill him because he's going to tell right. someone what's going on. Right. And so, yeah, it's like I mean, the, the first, go ahead. yeah, the first like three sentences of this book are about drugs hitting you while you're in the middle of the desert and you're being attacked by bats. like nothing like i think expresses just like this this depressing i don't know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and they're they're throughout the whole book throughout the whole movie they're they're in their own kind of separate world of everyone else you know yeah they're they're under the influence for pretty much the whole time um there's which is also kind of like it's it's the really hunter s thompson style of um you tell something inaccurately in order to express something that's truer than what's actually happening in a way. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. So even though they're mm-hmm. all completely zonked out and everything's obviously fake to some degree, there's like this mm-hmm. kind of, uh, I don't know, emotional truth or kind of this yeah, sense of I mean, being in touch with the culture. I don't know. Yeah. His, it's, it's full of truths and devoid of facts. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, 
I'm, I'm struggling to remember the quote at the beginning of, uh, I, I think in the foreword of Fear and Lo- Loathing on the um, Campaign Trail, but like it is the most accurate retelling of the 1972 campaign trail with the fewest facts or something. Yeah, like, yeah. Everything I, he I said is who... wrong, but nobody has told a truer story. I think that was McGovern who said that um, about, yeah, campaign trail. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the same thing's kind of going on with Las Vegas. Like, God, one of the fu- like one of the funniest scenes is uh, in it is they stumble across this um, conference of narcotics officers who are like, mm-hmm. you know, war on drugs stuff. You know, I guess it's pre war on drugs, but it's kind of, you right. know, they're, they're freaking out about the dangers of drugs um, and they're reefer the, madness. Yeah, reefer madness. And the, the speaker is giving him this talk where he's like explaining the different types of drug lingo so that the cops understand what the kids these days are talking about. And obviously it never happened, but it's the mm-hmm. funniest scene. And it really, I think reflects like this uh, authority completely out of touch with what's going on in the counterculture thing. Yes. Um, it's, yes. it's a great scene. <laughs> especially coming off directly coming off the, uh, the scene in the hotel where, um, where he's booking his room and has a moment of solidarity with the, uh, with the person at the hotel desk <laughs> as God, they're getting like bitched out by one of the police officers <laughs> who's trying to find their room. And he uses that, this opportunity to basically walk up, get his reservation quickly and painlessly and kind of flex <laughs> on the officer while he's like turning red in the the hotel. Yeah, the hotel yeah. desk clerk is just having a great time with it. <laughs> yeah, the desk clerk's like, man, we're sorry we can't get you into this cop. And then this stoned, like, complete shitbag of a person walks up. He's like, hey, I'd like a room. And he's like, yeah, okay, right this way, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, Mr. Thompson, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good scene. I think the, the main thing... Uh, I guess we never really said, yeah, uh, the, the whole thing's written under pseudonyms. So you got Raoul Duke... Uh, which is Tom uh, Thompson, and you got Doctor Gonzo, who is uh, you know uh, Oscar Zeta Costa, or as he's described in the book, his three hundred pound Samoan attorney, <laughs> which is the funniest shit. I, I uh, can't imagine like appearing, reading, reading your own description in a Thompson piece. Oh, it would be. It's like getting a caricature done. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> something that's still totally false but too true. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, so I, but I think like the big, the big moment, I guess that, that like, um, uh, what, what the, the book's thesis statement, if it has one is the wave speech, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is this kind of passage, uh, kind of, I think in the middle of the book where Thompson is kind of like describing the death of the sixties, as we kind of talked about like this, yeah. uh, sense that things were going well and then they weren't, um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I think you can get the old, the gist of it pretty quickly. Um, Strange memories on this nervous night in Las Vegas. Five years later, six, it seems like a lifetime or at least a main era. The kind of peak that never comes again. San Francisco in the middle of the 60s was a very special time and a place to be a part of. Maybe it meant something, maybe not in the long run, but no explanation, no mix of words or music or memories can touch that sense of knowing that you were there and alive in that corner of time in the world, whatever it meant. Uh, And then later on, there's this part that I think is really good to the kind of 60s stuff, which is uh, 
And that, I think, was the handle, that sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. There was no point in fighting on our side or theirs. We had all the momentum, and we were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. Um, and so, you, you know, he's got this, like, looking back on that sense of hope in the 60s, yeah. uh, which, you know, which eventually would cave in with the, you know, with the seventies, with the, you know, what would come in the next year, the death of the uh, McGovern campaign, which was kind of the last cry um, mm-hmm. of, of something resembling a sixties left. Um, and I, I think Thompson does a good job of talking about the sixties in a not romantic way. Um, yeah. What I mean is he's romantic. He taps into the romanticism of like, wow, it felt so great to be part of it, but he doesn't look back on that as that being like good that it was that way. Um, it's right. not boomer porn. He's not writing boomer porn. You know what I mean? He's going like, man, yeah. we fucked up or maybe not fucked up, but the thing we thought was going to happen did not happen. It's very disenchanted. Right. I don't know. Right. The like it was an incredible prevail. thing to be a part of, but it just didn't happen. Like, yeah. And it's that, that feeling of, like you said, hope there's, there's, it's a time of so much hope that just never gets resolved. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of stops, you know, with the yeah. government, with the McGovern campaign, in a lot of ways, I think, uh, as we talked about in the chaos episode with the Manson murders and the the mm-hmm. end of coming to the end of the 60s and entering the 70s, it's kind of a a different, a different sort of psychic, um, you know, feeling a, a, a different mood going into um, the 70s, where that hope has just kind of been defeated and now and there's no resolution to it it's it just mm-hmm. seems bad and like it's gonna stay bad and now nixon's president again yeah and i mean we'll get to later he kind of has the same moment a second time uh after bush v gore um yeah yeah and that was kind of the thing that broke him in a way and i mean mm-hmm. uh understandably i think if you were a leftist or whatever the hell thompson was he was kind of the left but he kind of wasn't um yeah but if you were whatever he was from you know the 60s into the 2000s like i i can imagine you know you saw nixon reagan and now bush it would just kind of be a sense of defeat right i, I, I could imagine that right i don't know he he has a i mean well, oops <laughs> <laughs> not quite sure what happened there <laughs> I think it's stuck <laughs> so right. in 1972 <laughs> <laughs> the rolling is- stone yeah, the Rolling Stone reaches out to our good friend Hunter S. Thompson for him to write about the campaign that's happening that year. And, you know, like as we talked about earlier, Thompson sees this as a moment to go and really get a get a handle on politics because mm-hmm. uh, he has no intent to make friends. He doesn't care about burning bridges. Uh, so he he's going to tell it like a, a fucking happened. journalist. He's no. just going to go there, do his gonzo thing and make some news up. <laughs> which he certainly does and uh yeah in a way like this this whole project was the desire to find the one honest politician i think that's how he frames mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. these are all charlatans to some degree or another 
Um, and so going in, he spots his eyes on George McGovern, which it's just it's really ironic that that was the guy he latched onto immediately because at the time nobody thought McGovern was going to win. Uh, and then McGovern <laughs> did win the primaries, which just just kind of either luck or maybe maybe Thompson's uh, Thompson's uh, journalism might have done something. I don't know. Um, or the rumors he spread on the other candidates. <laughs> okay, we'll get there. One of the two. <laughs> so uh, this this primary for the the Democratic par- primary, uh, finding the candidate that's going to go against Nixon. Um, we got we got McGovern, George McGovern, who's just this uh, honest folk left guy. His entire campaign is about getting people out of Vietnam, like ending the war mm-hmm. in Vietnam. Uh, you got Hubert Humphrey, who I don't even fucking remember what he stands for. I think that was the whole point is he didn't stand for anything. Yeah, it's kind of the establishment kind of guy. Yeah, it was I, it was either him or Ed Muskie that I remember he has this story about um, the candidate saying one thing and then saying something completely different in a different state just based off of how the audience felt about the topic. <laughs> I feel like that was Humphrey, I think. I think that was Humphrey. Yeah. Uh, Ed Muskie was, I think, a little more progressive, but still kind of an establishment mm-hmm. guy. Um, and then you have George Wallace. Now, quick history lesson, I guess, for those who aren't interested in politics in the 60s. Uh, Democrat did not mean liberal or left in the 60s. It sometimes meant that. But Nixon is the guy who makes the Republican Party the right wing party. Um, mm-hmm. You know, think of the Civil War, right? The Democrats were the conservatives. Um, so you've still got like the Dixiecrats. You got these like leftovers from the segregation era in the Democrat Party, which is why this this fucking primary is so bizarre. Because you have Mac- McGovern who's like, you know, yeah, well, like, you know, every left talking point at the time he's like trying to answer to. And then you have George McGovern, who's a fucking open segregationist. Like that's his, that's his career. Yeah. <laughs> and McGovern ends up getting shot or not McGovern sorry uh George Wallace ends up getting shot mm-hmm. uh at mm-hmm. some point during this did you get to that part yep yeah that part's good yeah <laughs> totally I like when he gets shot uh <laughs> <laughs> it was that probably a a, it was probably a bad thing to have happened because uh he rose in the polls pretty hard afterwards because he was like a murderer but you know right but he still yeah. lost so yeah, That's kind of what counts. I didn't know much about this election going into it, so especially um, on the the Democrat side. Do you know how it ended? I mean, aside from Nixon's victory, I know that, that Nixon won. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll I'll get into it. It's fun. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's, by fun, I mean it's it's soul crushing. It really is the death of the sixties. Uh, <laughs> well, I think I think one interesting thing to note about this book too is like unlike a lot of the other books that were written on it. Uh, this yeah. is not necessarily a retrospective. This was being written as a series of articles yes, that were being published yes. as it was happening. So this, you know, his his reactions are are pretty real. He makes no pretense of being unbiased, and he actually addresses that a couple times. Um, that he he is specifically biased. He lets you know who he's rooting for and what he wants to happen. Mm. Um, and he's writing it as it's happening, and so you kind of get get a taste sense of how of he feels. Right. Because he doesn't know that Nixon's going to win, um, mm-hmm. you know, as he's writing. There's it, no which... foreshadowing. Yeah. Yeah. Spoiler. Uh, Nixon wins. Nixon wins. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, one of my favorite parts of this book is um, Thompson causes a bit of a problem by 
reporting something that he made up. Um, now, when he was confronted about this, he's he's quick to say, "I'm an honest journalist." If you pay attention, because what what yep. he said was. <laughs> What he said in the article was, there are rumors <laughs> around here that Ed Muskie uh, has a drug addiction to really serious painkillers, I believe. Um, Iocane. Iocane, yeah, yeah. Very, very serious addiction to Iocane. Um, there were rumors, it was just that Thompson started them by publishing. <laughs> <laughs> He just hated Ed Muskie he was just so reporting much. reporting on the rumors that he started. <laughs> so and he's... he would reference this drug that he totally made up. The, the drug is entirely made up. Um, he would reference it in a lot of other stuff. Like, I was feeling like I myself must have been coming out of an Iocane binge. Um, <laughs> but all fabricated. So, yeah, he's like, you know, he, he's saying that he, he's like tracking down that like, the, this supposed uh, Brazilian doctor who's smuggling this in to give to Ed Muskie. <laughs> right. And, and people and, believed it. <laughs> like, right. And I mean, his whole thing was like, sure, nobody would believe that. It was ridiculous, which is true. <laughs> but <laughs> it, it ended up in like mainstream news outlets. <laughs> oh, and I think that this God. is really what politics journalism is missing today. I think so, too. I think it would be much better if everybody just admitted that they were biased and started lying. I think the 1972 election, like, this is kind of interesting because it was, um, it kind of felt like the way I felt this year following this this election. Mm -hmm. Um, Except if if Biden, if, if Bernie had won the caucus and then lost... The election. That's essentially yeah. what this this seventy two is. Um, yeah. So and and part of it is what you know what happens is McGovern chooses this guy uh, Eagleton um, Thomas Eagleton um, and basically goes like, hey, uh, but but before he before he asks him to hop onto the ticket, he says, do you have any secrets that uh, would maybe be notable? <laughs> <laughs> and Eagleton said, absolutely not. <laughs> um, and so it took pretty much no time after McGovern won the primary uh, for, you know, and after Eagleton was was put in that, that it, it came to light that Eagleton had been had such serious, like depressive episodes and like mental problems that he had to get or supposedly went and got electroshock therapy repeatedly to fix himself. Um, hmm. And supposedly had a bunch of mental problems that he was hiding. Now, one thing I do want to note about the 72 election that's fascinating is I feel like the extent of controversies at this time were much mm -hmm. lower than they are yes. now. Because there's a whole other, I don't, I don't even remember uh, Thompson reporting out, but there's a whole other controversy during this election of, I think Ed Muskie, uh, having some, there was some leak where he called Canadians an offensive term about Canadians. Um, so, like, that's the kind of controversies that are happening in '72, right? And, um, and yet, you do still have one candidate that's running on a segregation platform. Yeah, and he, that's not a, that's not a controversy at all. Also, <laughs> this is the election that Watergate happened. Yeah. <laughs> and what's funny about it is like that. Watergate became a controversy a couple years later, or like a year, yeah, two years later. I don't remember. Yeah. Um, but, but, but um, 
as as Thompson says at the end of the book, like the whole Eagleton bullshit is what kept Watergate from ever coming to light because the press was so obsessed with the fact that Eagleton supposedly got electroshock therapy. Mm. So 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 Thompson's theory of what happened within the election is that um, Eagleton lied that there was, you know, Eagleton was a snake in, in, in Thompson's eyes, lied about what was going on with himself. It came to light. It came to the public. It got reported. So then McGovern did the worst possible option, which was drop Eagleton. The reason mm. that was the worst possible option is McGovern's entire like base was young people. Um, and young people were sympathetic to psychological problems. Mm-hmm. So when they dropped Eagleton, that made McGovern look like a dick. <laughs> so Thompson's whole thing is like, you know, e- you know, Eagleton was a snake, but you probably should have just worked with him because when you dropped him, that made you look like an asshole for dropping him. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the end of the 1972 campaign um, is a victory for Nixon, as you know, but not just a little victory. Let me let me see if I can find the the um, map for you. Oh boy, history major coming in with you. Good God! <laughs> Holy oh shit! My God, it's like two states <laughs> went blue, and the rest. Um, yeah, Nixon got five hundred and twenty electoral votes. McGovern got seventeen. Holy shit. McGovern lost his home state. That's fucking brutal. That is brutal. Um, so that's that's the whole thing is he didn't just lose. He the Nixon mopped the floor with Eagleton. Yeah. And it was really because the the, you know, uh, media milked the shit out of the Eagleton story. I mean, according to Thompson, anyway, I, right. I don't know enough about this to speak yeah. otherwise, but it is frustrating. I, mean, I have because... to assume that there were some other things at play, but like, God yeah. damn, that's brutal. Yeah. And, and you know, th- th- it's a, it's a rough election. And um, I mean, this is the, this is the election Watergate happened, but the media mm-hmm. didn't talk about it. And had the media talked about it, I think the map would have looked a little different. Yeah, no, certainly. But it was just a non-story. I don't know. Huh? Yeah. One of the biggest landslides in American history. The the Fear and Loathing books, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and Fear and Loathing on a Campaign Trail, those were kind of the last of his big works. Like he continued to write after this. And I think he he wrote yeah. some other books as well and so on and so forth. But things started to kind of peter yeah. off for Thompson after this. He uh he kind of slid into the as I think is kind of a natural consequence of the the gonzo journalism style. So we'll we'll get there eventually too. But he slid into the rock star lifestyle, essentially, yeah, where he was yeah. just fucking strung out on drugs. He wasn't putting out new work. He wasn't putting out um, the same quality or level or volume of work that he had in the past. And he started to kind of shut down and become more and more of a recluse. And uh, and he didn't really come back from that. Um, yeah. He, Let's, uh, you know, God, sorry. He. he he moved to and this this is kind of great so his home he he owned like oh man was it like 30 acres or something he owned a decent amount of land that his landlord had just given him um for pretty much for free his landlord had became friends with him and then ultimately just gave him a bunch of land and then you know he slept around a bunch and got divorced and so his wife got half of that land that she then 
sold back to that original landlord. So <laughs> he ended up having to purchase back much of his land and uh, and Thompson kept the rest. And he just lived there with his guns and his booze and uh, and his girlfriend and and his girlfriend eventually. Yeah, because he did get remarried. Yeah, he, he also um, I mean, I think you could say that the McGovern campaign um, killed like like broke Thompson in a way like. Mm-hmm. He couldn't write as well as he used to. This isn't me saying that based off my own take. This is just what he would say about himself. Um, right. And he couldn't write the same anymore. Um, and I think he was just disenfranchised with with politics, um, except for he, he had a kick where he liked Jimmy Carter. Uh, mm-hmm. He liked Carter, I guess, uh, which I think who among us, although I think that's kind of funny because on the whole, Carter's presidency was a pretty massive failure. But, yeah. you know, but he's uh, just such a nice guy, you know, he is a nice guy. And that was kind of like, I think that was what was attractive to Thompson. Thompson liked losers, you know? Yeah, and I think it's because I don't think he trusted the system at all. And he believes like if you win in the system, you probably you probably fucked something up to get there. You know, you, right. you did something evil. So he, he just thought that, you know, the system chews up and spits out. Uh, idealists become idealists uh, eventually. I'm yeah. not sleepy, yeah. and there is no place I'm going to. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. In the jingle jangle morning, I'll come following you. Though I know that Evening's Empire has returned into sand, was becoming a regular character in the Archie comics. No, it was it was he did not willingly become this character. They had written a character that was basically a caricature of Hunter S. Thompson into into it, and it like crushed a lot of his credibility. Because now he was just like this crazy gun nut living out of his house who's just like strung out on drugs and just spouting crazy conspiracy shit. He's like the, I don't know, that guy it, from King of the Hill. Dale. Uh, it was, it was uh, Doonesbury. It was, yeah. uh, Doonesbury was the comic. Yeah. And the character oh, okay. Uncle Duke was named after it. And so it was like, yep. there'd be these comics where it's like. You man, you should become a writer. All you got to do is do a bunch of drugs and send it to Rolling Stone and they'll love you. And so it's just like this constant like mockery of Thompson's chick. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, man, we didn't even get to that. He, he pissed off the, the Rolling Stone people so much. <laughs> well, his whole career was just like missing deadlines, sending in garbage and occasionally submitting such a nugget of gold that you had to keep funding him. Yeah, yeah. Well, because most of the campaign trail writings he had, um, he would submit through, I think, a fax machine he'd just gotten. Right. (laughs) It's like he'd put in pages upside down or like just totally mess it up and they'd have to rewrite it from scratch. In some cases, I think the very last chapter of of, um, one of the last chapters in uh, the campaign trail, which if you ever finish it, you'll get to this. It's, it's one of my favorite parts. Um, he just has a complete meltdown. And so um, what they did is the editor drove out to meet him and like met in a hotel room or something like that and put on a tape recorder and just put the transcripts in Rolling Stone because that was like all they could do to get him to keep writing because he was having like these terrible, you know, anxious breakdowns from being drunk all the time. 
Yeah, and it's yeah he he certainly had a level of uh, a very high level of celebrity that enabled this. Like, it's it's kind of insane to me that that he was able to get away with this. And I I mean I'm sure you know they they invested a lot in him doing these stories and they made I'm sure a ton from them because it was, yeah you know, it, it's, it's a famous book a wildly successful. All, all said and done, wildly successful. But the path to get there is just fucking insane. Like, I, yeah. I, I think, like, if, if I went to work and I did half of this shit, it... You'd get fired. Oh, instantly. But then I, you have to wonder, too, like, how far can you really push it? Like, if, if you are consistently putting out stuff that is valuable and doing your job that is just way better than anyone else could possibly do it on just an entirely different level... How far will they let you go? Because Thompson, he went pretty far. See, the, the thing that, that's really interesting about Thompson, though, I think, is is like you're saying his fame is it, it, the way his fame functioned is kind of interesting because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, we kind of forget just how segregated the counterculture was from the mainstream mm-hmm. culture in the 60s. We kind of when we envision the 60s, we think of the hippies and shit. Um, But the hippies and shit were doing their own thing. It's not like the mainstream media really understood what was going on um, in that culture. So one of the big themes of Campaign Trail is just him not like is people being like Rolling Stone. What the fuck is that? Who reads that? Um, And so because of that, he was famous enough that people were reading his writing and he had a huge audience of readers, but Mm -hmm. not well known enough in the mainstream that most journalists didn't know like didn't know who he was. Yes. Um, and a lot of, a lot of um, candidates didn't know who he was either. And so that's part of the way he was able to get away with shit. Mm-hmm. Thompson's fall was coming after Las Vegas and campaign trail. Uh, once the mainstream media, because of campaign trail was very aware of who he was. And so the gonzo shtick just wasn't able to work anymore because you couldn't just like drunkenly stumble into you know, like a, 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 a Democrat national convention or something like that and write a piece about right. it. Cause you'd walk in and everybody'd be like, Oh, this fucker. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, it's like, uh, that, um, Ashton Kutcher show. Yeah. The, uh, prank show. Why am I blanking on what it's called? Punked. Punked. Yeah. Like punked. Like after a while people are like, Oh, am I on punked? Yeah. You but can't yeah, do it anymore. It's not funny now. Right. Or I was just watching Nathan for you. Yeah. That yeah. Same I, the, deal. They, I think they had to stop make. I mean, there's a reason I think they canceled Nathan for you after only like four seasons because it's really hard to do it if people know who you are. Right. That's one of those things that you, it just doesn't work. Like, uh, even to an extent, the uh, um, Borat stuff, Sacha Baron Conan. I mean, gets he harder really and harder every time. He, I mean, yeah, because I haven't seen Borat two yet, but it sounds like I he, haven't either. He had to go through a Borat lot of one. shit. He had to get like yeah, he had to get other actors involved. And mm-hmm. this is America. Also, he had to play a ton of characters because if he tried to be Borat, everybody would, you know, just say my yeah. life at him and call it good. And yeah. Yeah. Those things aren't generally good as a series. And mm-hmm. that kind of Hunter S. Thompson was was kind of similar because when you rely, like you said, on that <clears throat> kind of shock um and surprise once you get famous for it you can only do it if you're famous in a small circle but once you get past that and start to get into the mainstream um you can't really get away with it anymore and then you lose that that spark you had uh in those smaller circles yeah so from here on out he uh 
I feel like, yeah, there's just like lots of attempts to kind of resurrect his career and nothing really uh, does it. Like, so the Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas movie comes out in 1998. Uh, and it was, uh, I-, I didn't actually know this. It was a complete failure in theaters. Like mm-hmm. it it did terrible in theaters. Not surprised. Yeah. But how do you feel about it? I like the movie. I like the movie a lot. It's definitely like a cult classic kind of movie, though. Mm. Um, I it's I can see where it has a very limited appeal. I've I've shown it to a lot of people, and a lot of people do not like it. Yeah, and that doesn't really surprise me. I think it's a very good movie, though. But but like you were saying earlier, that might come partly from having read the books and knowing more of the context around it, and yeah, and being interested in Hunter S. Thompson himself as a person. That is part of why the book or the movie appeals to me so much. Yeah, and I think that Johnny Depp does a really incredible like having seen interviews of Hunter S. Tom Thompson speak and, you know, act and do things. Johnny Depp just it's uncanny how he nails it. Yeah, Johnny Depp does a great job. It's so interesting that that was not the first tr- like the first cast they had in mind, though. Yeah, um, actually, the whole the whole thing was kind of a mess to get going in the first place because Hunter S. Thompson was somewhat involved in the making of the movie. Mm-hmm. And he was just, well, cause he had to get the rights over. Right. Well, I think he was actually fair. Wasn't he fairly heavily involved in the making of the movie? Um, or I know, I know he, he rejected a bunch of people. Yeah. I, I don't know how much he was once things actually got moving, but you, right. you might be right. I, I'm not sure. Cause I know, I know that he ultimately, you know, coached Johnny Depp on a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, the big thing I always remember is like, so that famous wave speech that I talked about earlier um, mm-hmm. that I read from, uh, you know, they wanted to read from that word for word in the book or in the movie, because yeah. it's it's the one of the most famous parts of the book. Um, not only and, read from it word for word, but yeah, originally I, I don't, I'm trying to figure out what the name of the guy that was originally going to do this. I couldn't find it. Um, I bet if I rewatched the documentary, it would have said, <laughs> but uh he, we should he take wanted, notes or stuff. We should. Um, <laughs> he wanted to like draw like this cartoon anima- animation of like a wave sweeping up like protesters and like so this like very literal wave mm-hmm. pushing the 60s. And Thompson lost his shit at that. He's like, this guy's yeah. trying to make my writing into a goddamn cartoon. And Right. Well, it was very <laughs> against any kind of animation and like having it be cheesy or childish or anything like that. Yeah. So, so they ended up with actually, if you put it that way, it makes perfect sense why they ended up with Terry Gilliam. Mm -hmm. Um, You're not, yeah. If you don't know, you don't know Terry Gilliam. He's the guy who does the animations for Monty Python. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And he ended up going on and directing these just bizarre ass movies. Like if you've ever seen the Fisher King, uh, really good movie, but Jesus, what a weird movie. Huh. <laughs> it's like it's like half uh you know a ro- like a movie about like Robin Williams playing a misfit character who's finding love mm-hmm. um but the entire framing device is like like Jeff Bridges realizes he's responsible for Robin Williams' dead wife and it shows like a pretty graphic scene of her dying at one point um Jesus. but then it's like the the main story is like this nice heartfelt like Robin Williams is this weirdo and he meets another weirdo and Jeff Bridges is, is setting them up. And it's so lovely with these horrific gruesome scenes as the setup device. Huh. That, that's Terry Gilliam is a bizarre director. I like it. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's good. Um, but originally they wanted Jack Nicholson uh, to play 
Hunter S. Thompson, which was a very different movie had that happened. A very different movie. It was John Not Malkovich, Jack- John Cusack. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Very different. I, I think the Johnny Depp is really is the best fit. For it the was role, the though. ideal. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, if you see a side by side of the two of them or even just hear Johnny Depp's um, part in Fear and Loathing versus Hunter mm-hmm. S. Thompson actually talking, he's got a yeah. really unique cadence to his voice. Yeah, uh, yeah. He's got a very unique voice. And Johnny Depp it, does it almost perfectly. For sure. Well, so we, we move on. The movie comes out. It's a failure, but it's a cult classic for, for weirdos like us, I guess, have enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, so then in 2000, George Bush uh, is elected president. Um, and as I think I, I t- said this at the beginning, but I'll say it again. Like this, this is like what breaks Thompson. Like he was broken, I think, after Nixon second term, mm-hmm. but he was still had something um, I remember his second wife in Gonzo was talking about how, like, she'd never seen him get depressed. He'd always yeah. been angry or anxious, but it was like after Bush that he became depressed. Yeah. Um, and so he uh, subsequently committed suicide in 2005 mm-hmm. um, after a few years of that depression. Um, yeah. Which no one was really surprised about, I don't think. No, he made, he had made it very clear that he planned to go. And for a long time, his entire life, he had made it very clear that he planned to go out by suicide. Yeah, he, um, he wanted to have control over that. Yeah. And so that that didn't come as a surprise to anyone. The way that he did it was you know, the, the setting that he did. It, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe from the from Gonzo, he, he actually had his family there when uh-huh. he did it like. Am I misremembering this? Like, yeah, they had come he, over. He spoke with them. They went to another room and then like heard a gunshot. Is that uh, wrong? His wife, his wife was on the phone with them is what it says. Um, yeah. And he's oh, Jesus. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to probably put a content warning in the description of this one because I'm about to describe a suicide thing. Um, yeah, he was on the if you don't want to hear it, skip like a minute ahead. Uh, you need a. So Anita was his second wife. He got her on the phone and said he was asking her some questions about this ESPN column he was writing um, and then set the receiver on the counter. And Anita could hear the cocking of the gun, but thought it was the typewriter keys. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once she realized that it was about to happen, she hung up right as he fired. Um, and his kids were in the other room when it happened. There was a book falling over. And so they didn't check on him immediately. Uh, and then later uh, they found him and called the police. So, mm-hmm. yeah, pretty, pretty rough stuff. Um, yeah. Um, but everyone, everyone kind of knew that was coming. Um, and I think he had decided to describe his uh, his funeral to somebody like what he wanted for a funeral to somebody. Yeah. Before a couple weeks before. So, I mean, I think everyone kind of knew it was about to happen. Um, I don't know. Uh, Anita, Anita and Gonzo has a pretty hard words. I remember this. She, she called him a coward for doing it. Um, that was pretty brutal. Um, because she felt that the Bush administration was a time when, uh, you know, when, when, when the world would have needed the kind of journalism that Thompson did during the Nixon admin. Um, right. And he wasn't there to do it anymore. He gave up in her mind. Right. Which 
which is is largely unfair as he was nearing 70 at the time he was um, yeah a mess <laughs> and and if you if you watch you know videos from him later in life he his his speech wasn't very clear he had some chronic health conditions he he mm. was having a lot of problems um, i mean so from, many drugs is- and you know a a crippling crippling alcoholism his entire life <sighs> Moving from the depressing to the hilarious, though. Because <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to do it. He had described the funeral that he wanted. And he got the funeral that he wanted. He, he had built a 150-foot tower uh, in the shape of the double... Th- Didn't they build this after he de- died? Uh, they might have. He, they might have. He drew up plans for this with... Um, yeah, yeah. With Stedman. Him and Stedman drew up plans for how they wanted it. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was, yeah, a 153-foot tower with the double-thumbed fist clutching a peyote button. Like, it's it's that. Um, mm-hmm. As this giant tower with a cannon sitting on top of it. And um, they loaded up a bunch of fireworks as well. So um, basically, the, the big moment would be they would launch red, white, blue, and green fireworks into the air to the tune of uh, Spirit in the Sky, and then to Mr. Tambourine Man by Bob Dylan, um, alongside shooting his ashes out of the cannon. Yes, which, what a way to go. I mean... What a way to go. <laughs> and uh, this <laughs> this funeral cost $3 million and was funded by Johnny Depp. Yep, yep. And attended by over 280 people, including Senator John Kerry, George McGovern... Uh, 60 Minutes correspondent Ed Bradley, Charles Rose, and actors John Jack Nicholson, John Cusack, Bill Murray, um, Benicio del Toro, Sean Penn, and Josh Hartnett. Nixon couldn't make it. And that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Pat Buchanan was there, and they started just throwing rotting tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, that's that's how we went. And that is uh, that's Hunter S. Thompson. Ah, oh, that just means no one emailed us. What the hell? Well, we're we're back, and nobody has been emailing. Hello at verylegalvery.cool. What we, the hell, we, people? <laughs> Jared just sent himself an email to make sure that it works, and it does. We know it's working, and yet you guys, it's like it's like you don't even care. Like you don't you, even want to send us things to have Josiah read out loud on the show live literally i will read whatever you send no matter how you know no, unwoke no, or no, racist no, or no, no you know no. i misspoke could ruin a future political career kind of deal josiah will say it he's got no reservations <sighs> josiah will say the n-word on air i will not is what i'm getting at <laughs> not, i will absolutely if you type not. it into an email 
Apparently, um, that's not the first time I've said a slur on this podcast, though. I... And we're going to keep stepping up the slurs no, until no, people no, start. No, until no, we get no, 200 no, followers no, on Twitter, no, no, no. we are going to start saying slurs on this podcast. I'm I'm only going to say old tiny slurs about Europeans. I, I'm I'm like fine with those, you know, like I don't wow. know. OK, like making fun of wow. Italians. That's fine. I don't care about dude. That. Dude, the the Irish. I'm, I'm right mostly here. Irish. Yeah, I, that okay. I want to say that was my favorite part of the little bit of writing I read at the beginning. Was was my my hundred pound Italian attorney taking <laughs> off his shirt, pouring a can of bubbly on his chest. <laughs> no, that that part was pretty solid. I, I kudos right there. That was good. We need to do the whole rewrite, like a, a full rewrite of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, except just podcast themed, like the whole thing. Uh, I think we could do it. It's very legal, very fear and loathing in very legal, very cool fear and loathing on Twitter. Do you have um, do, do you uh, do we have any patrons? I don't believe so. I don't think we've gotten any new patrons. Let Fucking me... shit, guys. Yeah, I think that I think our, our fan base has abandoned us. I think so. Oh, wait. No, we, we do have four patrons. <gasps> Ooh, who but is who? I just signed in. Uh, okay. I found my password. Uh, Connie Lingus messaged us two months ago. Oh, what did Connie uh, Lingus say? Connie Lingus says, um, I'm subscribed under... Uh, we knew that part. I just heard the new podcast, and to be honest, I'm surprised you guys would think I can afford more. You've seen my tax documents. I'm broke. This was two months ago. Oh. Um, I have not seen your tax documents, Connie Lingus. No, because she sh- they said they were Trump. But I don't believe them. Hmm. Um. So, AJ Montepete, $5 tier. Who's AJ Montepete? Uh, that's like one of our followers. Uh, he's on Twitter. He messaged, he sent us some messages and talked. Yeah, he's one of our Twitter followers. Oh, wait, wait, he's wait. He's been I uh, communicating with us recently. I, I, I recognize the name. I, I have to see This it. means, this means we've, we've hit the big time. We've got, we've got people who are interacting with us that we don't know in real life. Unless we do, in which case we're sorry, AJ. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. He roasted us when, uh when I said that we would like to get in a, a Twitter beef on November 18th. That's cool. Yeah. Well, not, not a high enough tier for us to uh, mock him on the show. So, so we'll be nice, fine. but, but yeah, uh, I would like to shout out to both Leo and Connie Lingus. Um, Leo has to date paid the show $40 and Connie Lingus has to date paid the show $30 like thanks <laughs> that's a lot of money we've we've earned um we we've earned uh nearly a hundred dollars we've earned ninety dollars oh, making this show that's aj monopy mon petit do you know do you know them no designer well, yeah, dad just, doer yeah doer yeah pink socks yeah yeah okay sorry now now I, i'm a visual person yeah i finally ah, okay. found the comment and i was like oh yeah, yeah, yeah i've seen them okay you know what just for this just for because this. AJ, because you are a uh, as, because you are a patron, we are gonna follow you back on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> You've earned it, buddy. You've earned it. Yeah, Seth is actually our longest. Uh, he is the longest time patron, but because he's on the pay- three dollar tier, 
he's only brought in fifteen dollars. And that sucks, dude. So thank thank you to everybody that gives us money. It does cost us money to run this show, believe it or not. Not and so we I will are admit, almost not, not a lot of money, but but not some a lot money. of money. It cost it costs about twenty dollars a month with about fifty dollars of startup costs. Mm. We are actually over, so I guess we should consider how we uh what we do with that money. How much? I guess I could keep it all. That'd be fine by no, me. No, no, no. I don't like <laughs> that idea. I did right. the notes. <laughs> <laughs> and the editing hey wait a second <laughs> i think i'm gonna change the password on this what the fuck, dude <laughs> well this has been a nice little look behind the curtain yeah we've and got 98 dollars and 34 cents ready for withdrawal yeah well yeah and you know what uh yeah so subscribe to our patreon if you subscribe to us at the two or, th- or two or five dollar range we'll make fun of you on twitter uh if you subscribe to us at the ten dollar range though which is the best range mm-hmm. uh we'll make fun of you on the podcast for a month let's let's move on to my favorite segment are you good with that yes twitter news Oh no. Is there a parlor? Do you have a parlor? No. Oh. <laughs> I just wanted to bring that in a little bit. <laughs> Twitter news. Well, I got I got some tweets for us today. The first one comes from my good friend Rod Rare, who will not block me on Twitter. And the the <laughs> dude needs I've been trying to get the dude to block me on Twitter forever. It'll happen. It'll happen. It'll happen. So there's an attached YouTube video he's responding to that I don't really give a shit about. Um, it's just that, that this this you know conservative type or Christian guy called John Smerick talks some shit about Rod Dreher, and so Rod Dreher is also mad at another conservative guy, Aaron. Metaxas, I'm probably mispronouncing that name. It's the guy that wrote the Bonhoeffer biography. It doesn't matter. Um, so Rod Dreher says, Hey, Eric Metaxas, in this op-ed, you tout Jay's Merrick's IDs, IDs me as one of the servile Christians who won't defend Trump. Jay-Z says on your show that he wouldn't piss on Christians like me if we were on fire. Am I servile? <laughs> Would you piss on me, old friend? <laughs> Please, sir, can you spare a little piss? <laughs> See, I don't really, it's, you don't need to really get into the entire, like, weeds of the internal workings of the shitty right-wing Christian politics to understand how funny it is for Rod Dreher to be begging Eric Metaxas <laughs> to piss on him. <laughs> old, friend. <laughs> old friend. I've seen that porno. <laughs> Won't you please piss on me, old friend? <laughs> Next up, we've got a tweet. It actually comes from uh, at Truanon Pod. Uh, it's not about Truanon though, so I don't. You know, we don't have to get into that. It's just they're the first to share this that I could find, and it's so funny. Um, this is a PETA, recent PETA thing they're working on right now. Um, it's oh, a petition. Yikes. Give Ghislaine Maxwell her vegan meals, says PETA. <laughs> you mean it's not pronounced Ghislani? Is it Ghislani? <laughs> I thought it was. Might be. Who knows? Who cares? Miss Maxwell. Uh, 
If you're unfamiliar with Ms. Maxwell, <laughs> uh, she played a very large role in the whole child rape thing that happened with Epstein. And she's currently in the uh, Metropolitan Detention Center, uh, Brooklyn Warden, um, you know, in the Brooklyn area. Uh, the warden has not offered her vegan meals, and she's a vegan. Now, certainly, I think that feeding prisoners who are vegans not vegan meals, that sucks. I will say the choice of this particular person <laughs> to focus yeah. on might be a weird decision. Well, especially if you read the whole press release, it's uh, yeah. it's not really about Ms. Maxwell. It's just using her as a prisoner's need vegan food but it's just such a poor choice of like like you said i mean there there's an argument to be had there but this is such a bad way to take that argument like (laughs) the worst person you know wants vegan food so let's use that to bring it in let me make this clear i oppose the death penalty and that's why i'm signing this petition against the death of mussolini (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, I don't think people should be killed by mobs. (laughs) (laughs) Sign with me in defense of Eichmann today. (laughs) Good Lord. Uh, Next tweet I got from you comes from Shane Smedley. All right. Breaking. Obama has been arrested. More to come. <laughs> Dude, so my mom sent me that like two hours, two full hours before it hit Twitter. I was so mad. Holy shit. <laughs> and and like like she always does, she she texted that along with uh what do you think of this? <laughs> I love I'm not gonna tell does. you what I think of that, mom. I think that's so funny that she does that, where she's like, hmm, Liz- uh, Hillary Clinton is a lizard man? What do you <laughs> think of this? I'm just keeping my mind open. <laughs> right. It's so hard to tell what's fake news these days. <laughs> you know, on the one hand, you have this article from you know NSNBC about Obama doing normal stuff. And really just being, you know, Obama. On the other hand, I have this article about Obama actually being three men in a trench coat. (laughs) (laughs) Good God. Like, let's think about this. Obama's been arrested, ex-president of the United States, for espionage. And yet, only one outlet, one shady little outlet that's living in some back corner of the internet, they're the only ones that got the scoop. Well, because the, the deal is, I think people have the, like, a lot of these conservatives have such a weird understanding of media mm-hmm. that they think media is, like, you know, trying to stick up for Obama so they're not going to report it. No, maybe it doesn't media, make sense. No, it doesn't because it's the media's job. They would be frothing at the fucking mouth to be the first to report that story. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, hell, Fox News isn't going to run that. Like, Jesus. And also, yeah. <laughs> this is public court records. You can't, like, if he's truly been arrested... People will know, and you it's not a secret. Uh, final tweet comes from uh, <laughs> Brendel Board. Um, and it, it, they write, uh, just watching Prager use video, was Jesus a socialist? 
that culminates in Jesus meeting a homeless man and getting him to set up a small business with the help of a wealthy investor. Best <laughs> olive it... oil in Jerusalem. <laughs> Abe's olive now, oil. <laughs> when I first saw this, I actually just like based on the art style and just kind of glancing through it as I scrolled by on my phone. It's like, oh, South Park did a bit on Jesus. <laughs> Oh man! Speaking of speaking of that uh, that demographic. Oh no! <laughs> is Parlor News? This is Parlor News. A, a segment within a segment. Uh huh. This is this is like the anti segment of Twitter news, in a weird, fucked up, convoluted world where Twitter news is the good side. somehow we've managed to bring in evil twitter news and (laughs) and i i recently discovered that the babylon b has a page on uh on parlor jesus they've gotten so bad uh yeah and what you know what kills me about the babylon b is now and again they'll throw out something that's just really funny yeah and then you're like, oh, but they're so bad when you click their website. Right. I, I will say though, so the the first thing that they posted, and I'm just gonna go through a few of their a few of their headlines here. Um, in order to appeal to suburban Christian women, vaccine to be distributed through a pyramid scheme. See, that's great. That's a great. That's funny. That's funny. Um, a touching gesture. Camilla Harris just sent Joe Biden 17 get well soon puppies. That's also sure. hilarious. Sure. Um, <clears throat> smoke rises from the Capitol building, signifying House vote to de- decriminalize marijuana. Weak, but not a resembling not, not a joke. Bad. Yeah, yeah, joke adjacent. Um, AOC mm. shares plan to enact socialism for five e- easy payments of forty nine ninety nine. Uh, weak resembles um, a joke, I guess, but yeah, it's it's like joke adjacent. I'm trying to, can you find, uh, any, um, uh, I identify as an X jokes? Well, Those are always great. I was, I was just getting to that. Uh, oh, Elliot page you. retroactively awarded 17 off Oscars for amazingly convincing portrayals of women. God, that sucks. That sucks, man. Oh man. We've got, we've got another one here too. Um, Smeagol sets pronouns to ourselves slash their selves. Or sorry, RZs slash theirzies. Uh, Project Veritas shunned by journalists for practicing journalism. Hmm. Uh, that's certainly <laughs> a take. Babylon, Babylon B is best when it's talking about the church and evangelical mm-hmm. culture because that's what they know. So they'll be like, uh, aren't evangelicals wacky? And I'm like, that's true. They are wacky. That's so funny. And then the next one will be like, let's line trans people up in a firing squad. <laughs> <laughs> I will say their their Biden ones are pretty good. Uh, Camilla says Biden sure. will be kept comfortable while discussion ensues about whether to keep him alive. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's that's pretty good. Um, and then there's like just kind of weak stuff like this. Government prepares for next pandemic by taking away everyone's rights ahead of time. <sighs> Pope Francis says COVID vaccine will now be required to enter heaven. Yeah. For sure, for sure, man. I believe that one. Because, yeah, this it's the communists and Catholics, you know. Oh, yikes, this one. 
This is rough. Uh-oh. Biden's all-female communication team won't tell nation what's wrong. Nation should already know. Uh, women be shopping, am I right? Right? Women. <laughs> Always passive-aggressive. They won't talk to you. Well, this has been Parlor News and Twitter News. There we go. Plugs and we're done, man. We did it. All right. All right. Well, why don't you start us off with plugs? Oh, man. I, uh, what would I like to plug today? I would like to plug. I never think this one through. Um, hmm. I would like to plug um, Yeti, Yeti mugs, and their uh, their customizing Yeti tool. I have hmm. one of the fun things that I do at my very important job is I recently purchased about two and a half thousand dollars worth of Yeti mugs with our company logo on it that we will be distributing nice. as Christmas presents. So if you want to know what it's like working in healthcare adjacent companies, it's like that. That's cool. Yeah, I just bought a bunch of Yetis and they made the process really easy. And if you order 25 or more, they waive the additional $5 fee per cup. And so they're only like $30 each plus a $10 uh, fee. Nice. Yeti. Yeti mugs. What about you, Josiah? Yeah, uh, I'm going to plug... I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks because at my um, job at a Walmart, uh, the only thing that keeps me sane is constantly listening to things while I'm stocking shelves. Mm. So aside from Hunter S. Thompson, uh, I pivoted really hard into some Catholic stuff also after Hunter S. Thompson, kind of as a palate cleanser, I think. Right. Um, but I, uh, I so, so I listened to um, Dorothy Day, A Devotion by Robert Coles. It is, as it sounds like, a biography of Dorothy Day. Um, what I found was a kind of weird comparison to Hunter S. Thompson in a completely different way. Um, hmm. Because she's reflecting similarly on the radical movements of the, the like, bohemian radical movements. Hmm. And, like, the, the 40s, eventually. Um, well, the 30s and 40s. And, you know, starting the Catholic Worker, which is, like, this, this anarchist Catholic... Uh, house that gives you know feeds the poor and stuff very cool very cool stuff um right but she was reflecting a lot on like young radicals and what makes people young people so idealistic and it kind of felt like this catholic 40s version of the wave speech i don't know i i found huh. her a really compelling plus the really it's it's conversationally written it's not just a regular biography it's actually interviews with her uh near the end of her life um with this this the guy who wrote it robert coles um mm -hmm. is this psychoanalyst so he's coming in things with like this freudian mindset and she's coming in things with this very catholic mindset and he's not afraid to tell her when he thinks shit and she's <laughs> equally not afraid to say the same of him and so fascinating distinction between modern thought and yeah. old ancient catholic thought it's it's very good that's fascinating yeah so check that out that's my plug i was like
excited to actually have a plug this time. Usually I yeah. just kind of bullshit something, but it's a very yeah, good book. I've never done that. <laughs> uh, never. Well, I think I think we've reached the end. I think so. I will I say we've we gotten a, we've gotten a couple real life reviews on my end on the show. Uh, not oh, only yeah. just reviews, but uh, feedback points. Um, okay. So you want to hear some of the feedback I've gotten on our show? Sure. Um, one episodes are too short. <laughs> one one person <laughs> said it is it is not information dense enough. Uh, we take too long to say things. Um, another person told me you guys laugh at yourselves a lot, and it's kind of distracting. Um, ah. Yeah. Um, and then another person said, I don't really understand it, but it's pretty un- entertaining. Okay. Uh, yeah. And that's. Uh, I-, I think I'm really only going to pay attention to the third one there. The other two, I mean, <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's about where I'm at. <laughs> I think this is uh, a lot of dicking around with a vague theme. Uh huh. No, there, there is no. Uh, there's no pretense of being a an informational podcast here. We are unapologetically uh, misleading. Yeah. Uh, I, I also had somebody ask about, aren't you a little bit worried about spreading misinformation? To which I told them, no, that's more of a feature of the podcast. Um, <laughs> and they didn't like that, but... <laughs> they, they did not uh, they did not like that. Um but that's that's who we are and we're proud of who we are. Uh, yeah. Confidently incorrect. I think that's a good note to end on. What do you think? I think so too. I think we've done it. Well thank you. Thank you. This has been another legal. episode of your favorite podcast, very legal, very dot cool dot com. That's the dot com part. That's the, right? the music that's part the of music our vanity. Is a, uh, the music is a garage band loop that I stuck in our people. You can follow us on Twitter at the legal be cool pod. Uh, fuck. Oh, dude, Josiah, I'm actually really surprised that you didn't. Uh, in Twitter news, you made Twitter. You were Twitter news this week. You went viral. Oh wait, what? Kind of. You got oh, 300 I... likes. Oh yeah. I guess that's viral for a small little little baby account like me. Yeah, what was my tweet? The, the Steven Crowder thing. Oh yeah, so yeah, that's a follow up to the podcast uh, from the the creation yeah. episode. Um, uh, yeah, so Stephen Crowder is no longer following me. <laughs> Blocked you even? He didn't block me, thank God. Oh, he didn't. That's good. No, it's kind of weird move, I think. Uh, anyway, I sent him a picture of a drawing of a goose with a really big butt. Human legs. Human legs. And uh, by by uh, the great artist tommy siegel um and and steven crowder was not a fan <laughs> which i don't understand i don't either he has his dm set up that you can only dm him if you're if he's following you so i think he was really surprised that he was following me he's <laughs> <laughs> like what the fuck <laughs> yeah all right What's up? Let's call that good. Today's episode is brought to you by drugs. You can do them anytime, anywhere, and as long as you write about it, you'll get a big check from Rolling Stone. You don't even need to uh, turn it in on time. You don't even need to turn that writing in before the deadline. Just as long as something gets faxed to the Rolling Stone, they will publish it. It also helps to find an equally drugged out illustrator who will 
give a good face to your drug habit. Drugs, try them today. Wait, is it Natalie Portman in that? I'm gonna sound real dumb if I think it isn't. So. I just, I gotta just gotta check, make sure. Come on, IMDb, work faster. It's Natalie Portman. We're good. We're good. Nice, nice. Okay, we're <laughs> we set. did it. All right. <laughs>